Good morning, Memphis. We are here with your weekly episode of Meanwhile in Memphis. My name is Anna Mullins-Ellis. I am here with my uh, temporary co-host, Anna Thompson. Good morning, Anna. Good morning, good morning. We are coming to you from the offices of New Memphis. New Memphis is a local nonprofit. Uh, We work to develop, engage, activate leaders in our community. Um, We do that because we know that we have a city full of potential and we want to make sure we've got great people in every corner of our community leading us forward, shaping a better future for Memphis. And that is the theme of this podcast. Uh, You might be listening to us on WYXR FM radio at 8 a.m. on Tuesday morning, or you might have uh, very generously followed our podcast and perhaps you've liked it, perhaps you've shared it. We love that. Um, We release that every Tuesday. So we are here this week with a jam-packed episode, and I could vamp for hours about our guest, um, but I won't because uh, (laughs) you'd rather hear him talk. David Waters, um, distinguished journalist in residence at the Institute for Public Service Reporting at the University of Memphis, but I'm sure you um, you might be familiar with his byline from the Commercial Appeal, where he worked for many decades um, as a columnist. Um, he is truly a talent. I just I admire this man so much. Um, I I both am a huge fan of his writing. I love the way that he puts a story together, um, and I'm just a huge fan of him as a as a human being. Um, and I think he uh, is going to share a lot of that today. And I, all of that is really distilled into a TED talk that he gave. So uh, my my uh, currently absent co-host Christy would um, uh, scold me for not saying this is a TED episode. TED episode. Yes. TED episode. Um, doesn't really roll off the tongue, but I'm still gonna I'm gonna keep saying yep. it. Um, so uh, every few weeks, we both bring in a guest who, once upon a time in the last few years, gave a TEDx Memphis TED Talk at one of our local conferences, um, and then we will play his TED Talk. It is really I say this a lot, and I, I actually mean it every time, but I really mean it today. This is one of my favorites. Um, we don't we don't replay the ones that weren't my favorites, I guess. So, um, but David Waters gave an amazing TED talk in 2016, and it is it really merges his incredible career as a journalist and I think his his really moving philosophy about how to be somebody who's really present and active in community. Um, so that is what you're going to get today. It's a big one, and then also as we are marking National Intern Week. Correct. Yes. Thank you. I'm I'm like there's a National Intern Day which we will also celebrate, but that is not today. But this whole week. Um, so you've probably heard us if you're a frequent listener talk about the importance of internships in our city, the importance of young talent helping um, mentor mold and uh, shape that next generation. So we are bringing our own interns. We have two incredible interns right now. So we are super excited to have Landerson and Tatiana, who are our new Memphis interns for the summer, but they are also distinguished as Bank of America student leaders, which is super exciting. And we're going to talk to them more about what that means and why they got interested in it and all things Bank of America student leaders. For National Intern Week. It is, it is a competitive program. Um, thank you, Bank of America, for, for giving us these amazing interns because they pluck the most talented um, recent high school, these two young women just graduated from high school, um, and they are smarter than all of us combined. So, true. That's uh, a true We are statement. very lucky to have them. So that is, hang on for the full episode because you're going to get to hear from those wonderful young ladies uh, when we get to the end. So let's jump in with David. Let's roll. David Waters is here with us in studio. David, thanks for joining us today. Hi, Anna. It's great to see you again. It's been a while. It, it has. I was actually reflecting um, this morning. I, the, the first time I was ever on a podcast or a radio was was with you at the Commercial Appeal. Oh, my gosh. And I remember listening back to it and going, 
he sounds so soothing and I sound very shrill. <laughs> so I imagine that the listeners today are having a similar experience. The commercial <laughs> appeal, I remember that. What was that again? <laughs> no, right? Sorry, I'm, like, I, I'm just I, kidding. I think it's still there. Yes, it no, is. It's wonderful. It. So... We've we've given your kind of quick bio. So I mean, most I, I I imagine most Memphians are familiar with your name and your byline. You've you've been a presence here for for many years. Decades. So, <laughs> <laughs> Long before you were born, I'm sure. Decades. Um, but I think you have a because of that you have such a unique perspective on our city's history, and I think also that gives you unique context to where our city's going. So. Before I ask you a, a huge question like where is our city going, tell us a little bit about your current project because I think it's really interesting. And if folks haven't seen your byline in a minute, just what are what are you doing? Yeah. Well, thanks for asking. Uh, I work for the Institute for Public Service Reporting. I've been there about two years now. After I left the Commercial Appeal, this is a new project that was started by the former editor of the Commercial Appeal, Lewis Graham. Mm. And it's housed at the University of Memphis. It's part of the university campus uh, program. And I'm a member of the faculty, and we have two full-time journalists working for the Institute. And the idea is to take the kind of reporting that has been lost over the past 10 to 15 years, not just in Memphis, but across the country, because the news media has sort of been in a, not quite a death spiral, but, you know, we've been declining for a long time because print news, print journalism has, the business model just doesn't work anymore. So, for example, when I worked in the commercial appeal in the 90s, I worked there since 1980, if you can believe that. Um, but I worked there in the 90s, and that's when we sort of had the peak uh, number of journalists in Memphis. We had over 200 full-time working journalists at the Commercial Appeal <sighs> in the 90s. When I left the Commercial Appeal in 2019, there were about 20. Mm-hmm. And that has been a steep decline that has not just happened in Memphis but elsewhere. So you've lost a lot of local reporting, not just bodies but experience, people who have covered the community for decades. They're gone. And so to fill that void... We started the Institute for Public Service Reporting to try to f- to try to um, do the kind of explanatory and investigative journalism that takes time. Mm-hmm. And lo- local news organizations really just don't have the bodies or the time anymore to, to do that kind of reporting. These are stories that take weeks and months to do. Mm-hmm. And the idea is to help people better understand what's happening around them, better understand the news. Um, investigative reporting is pretty simple. Everybody knows what that's all about. We've got a guy named Mark Preskia who's probably the best investigative reporter this town's ever had and one of the best in the country. And he works for the Institute. He does a lot of stories about police excess- excessive use of force. Um, he's done a, a incredible series on the rape kit crisis in Memphis. You know, why did it take so long for the police to to really get those rape kits tested and so on and so forth. And those st- those stories take... You know, months, often months, and lots of digging, lots of document search, lots of uh, freedom of information requests, lots of interviews. And uh, I do what we call explanatory journalism, which I think is is my favorite kind of journalism. It's sort of helping people use stories and real life to help people understand what's in the news. And it, once again, those stories take weeks and months. The idea is for me and Mark to become experts in the topics that we're writing about. Mm writing about it, not just sort of parachuting in for a day or two and trying to figure out what the, what's happening in the news and then and write about it, but spend time with the people who are writing about. Spend time in a classroom, spend time in a police squad car. Um, just sort of get to know who these people are, what they're doing, why they're trying to do what they're doing. And that takes a while, you know, to develop expertise. And so the Institute gives us that time. 
we have all the time in the world, more or less. We have, you know, sometimes only days, but usually we have weeks to spend on a particular topic, getting to know as much as we can about that topic, and then taking our time to sort of um, write it in a way that is very accessible, and people can sort of um, follow it along as a, as a sort of narrative instead of just sort of, you know, news-in-your-face kind of stuff. So anyway, that's our, that's our goal. We've been at it uh, a little over three years total, and we are hopefully going to be hiring a third reporter real soon. The goal, long-term goal is to have five full-time reporters over the next five years uh, working at the university as a base. Um, the university has been incredibly supportive. They've made Mark and I both faculty members. So we have the independence. We have that sort of uh, journalistic editorial freedom that a faculty person has. Mm. Uh, and that's really important in, in journalism, obviously, because you don't want to be seen as writing for a particular uh, organization or or you know, somebody who has an agenda. So that's what I'm doing. Uh, we've been doing that uh, about three years. I've been there almost two. And uh, I hope we keep doing it. You know, it's there's a lot of really interesting things happening in journalism in Memphis. And I think we're really blessed by what's happening. And we can talk about that if you want to. Um, no, I'm, I'm very curious. I, I mean, obviously, there's no better person to, to ask for their perspectives on it. But as you said at the beginning, that the, the model, it hasn't just changed. It's It's been completely transformed mm -hmm. and the the value proposition of news mm -hmm. is so different and so i'm curious as you noted good journalism is expensive and that's not just mm -hmm. because journal i'm sure i'm sure you get paid tons of money to oh, yeah. right. <laughs> my limo um, is waiting right outside <laughs> but it is it's time consuming and it takes you know it's labor intensive well and, you know taking looking at the way that the newsroom changed as you described from 1980 having hundreds of journalists covering this community right. and this state and then to have that taken to 20 it it it's then no one's an expert in anything because you're mm. having to cover city hall and education and every different neighborhood so right. you can't really get that depth of of experience right. and knowledge the depth um, has been got has been lost and yeah i mean everything that you just described is like so antithetical to um just like the nature of modern information now where like if you right. can't make it into like a 60 second TikTok, then mm. we don't, <laughs> we're not interested. <laughs> right. um, so I'm curious, one, from a, a macro level, like on the national scale, what are trends that you're seeing both in terms of how to fund journalism, how to, how to continue to increase the quality and the quantity, um, and then what's happening locally that you think is notable or that, you know, or, or that perhaps other people are looking to Memphis as, as a model? Yeah. Well, there's a lot happening, um, and, and I think you have to make a distinction between what's happening nationally and what's happening in local markets like Memphis mm -hmm. or Little Rock or Louisville, those places. Um, nationally, New York Times, Washington Post, um, the larger news magazines in New York, or et cetera, they are finding other ways to be funded, thank God, because they have actually increased their um, editorial staffs over the past 10 years mm -hmm. because they found new ways, especially digital ways. And that's been the difficult transition for especially local organizations to make, going from print revenue-based to digital revenue-based. Um, we actually, there are actually more people reading the Commercial Appeal now than ever before in history, but they're reading it online. And so in the old days when you had maybe 200,000, 300,000 paper subscribers, you had a certain revenue base that covered you know, all of your expenses really well and made a profit. The digital revenue doesn't come in that fast. So for every dollar you make on print 
revenue, you may you maybe make a, a penny or a dime on digital. So you can see the economics doesn't quite work out to maintain the staffing. Not quite. Right. So for-profit news organizations have had a very difficult time making that transition from print to to digital. And, you know, you think about the cost of a newspaper. The number one cost is paper. Hmm. The number two cost is distribution. You have to deliver it to everybody's house every day. I mean, that's in some ways an insane way to to deliver your product <laughs> although you know now that now that we've got amazon you know doing our grocery store grocery mm-hmm. shopping for us maybe maybe not but um and the third cost is people so the only way to cut is to cut people and digitally you you lose all those expenses you don't have print uh, expenses you don't have distribution expenses so you can just pay people theoretically it makes a lot of sense but then you have to find ways for people to pay and people got so used to buying to not buying things online, to getting information for free online. Yeah. You click on it, you expect it to open, you don't have to pay for it, and it's there. And we were offered it free for a long time, and I think that was probably a mistake in mm-hmm. hindsight because people got used to getting information for free. So now we're sort of backtracking and asking people to pay subscriptions for digital content. You can't ask them to pay as much. It's just a more more difficult proposition. So in lieu of all the difficulty of for-profit business, Nonprofits have risen up to try to help. And in Memphis, we've been blessed by a number of different ways in which people are trying to provide information through nonprofit means. The Daily Memphian is a perfect example. Started, I think it was three or four years ago. It's a nonprofit business model, it's a nonprofit organization. And they actually have about as many journalists as the Commercial Appeal does now. In fact, a lot of old CA folks are at the Daily mm-hmm. Memphian. It's a daily digital only newspaper. And to make that work, you, even in a nonprofit setting, you've got to have a certain number of customers who are willing to pay for that product, in addition to advertising that you do. Um, and, and, it's, and it's working really well because, like I said, they've been able to employ about as many as the CA right now. And they're doing good work. So in some ways, we, ha- we are blessed with two daily newspapers. It's been a long time since Memphis had two really reputable daily newspapers. And now we're back in that place again. And I think we're better served for it to have that. There's some competition between the two, and that's always a good thing in some ways. Uh, but it, but it's also a way to sort of expand the reach of local news organizations. But in addition to the Daily Memphian, we've got other other people trying other ways of providing that information. MLK 50, for example, started by Wendy Thomas several years ago. That's another nonprofit model. She's been able to do some really serious, excellent journalism that helps Memphis better understand what's going on through her nonprofit model. She's gotten some foundation grants. She's been working with ProPublica, which is one of mm-hmm. the other new, it's like the you know, New York Times of the digital world. They've done some amazing investigative reporting. Um, we've got something called Chalkbeat. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read Chalkbeat. We love Chalkbeat. Big yeah. fans. Chalkbeat covers education. They cover it nationally, but they also cover it locally. They have a Memphis office with a couple of reporters, and they focus entirely on education. So there are these little sort of pop-up nonprofit organizations that are starting to sort of be niche-oriented. MLK 50 focuses on issues of racial justice and, and equity and that sort of thing. Chalkbeat focuses on education. So I think what we're going to be seeing as we go forward into the coming years is going to, is going to be smaller organizations that are more focused on particular topics or areas of coverage that will allow them, number one, to, to be there, to find nonprofit ways to be funded through foundations or universities or whatever. Secondly, it will help them build expertise. Mm-hmm. 
because that that is to me what has been missing for so long or, or been lacking for so long is that we just don't have the bodies anymore to devote uh, to particular areas of health. We used to have, for example, um, I covered the state legislature back in the early 90s in Nashville. And when I went up there to cover the General Assembly, there were probably 30 other full-time reporters covering it with me from across the state. There may be two right now covering the entire state mm-hmm. government full-time, and they're both in Nashville. So we've lost that watchdog. Yeah, that checks and balances. Exactly. So, And, and legislators know that. Government officials know <laughs> that. They know they're not being watched as closely as they were before. And they're doing and that, some silly things. They, they, well, they've always done silly things. They're wild and They may there. be doing more of them now. Um, yeah. So, I, I, and, I, and I think that that's dangerous. I think that when we, I think that's our number one role is to keep an eye on government. Because if we don't do it, who will? Um, and so we've lost that ability to sort of keep a really close eye on not just local government, but state government. And we've got to find other ways to do that. Other states have done that really well, too. And I hope we're going to see that happen here. There are other states like Texas and Wisconsin that have developed these nonprofit news organizations that their sole purpose is to look and watch state government and to let people know what's happening with state government. I think that's the future of journalism. I'm pretty excited about it. It's going to be difficult to get to a place where we have enough people doing it on a regular basis and doing it well, especially through nonprofit means. But I think we'll get there. And as you all know, I mean, uh, the nonprofit world um, in many ways sustains this community. There are so many amazing nonprofits in this community. And so why not uh, make journalism a part of that, of, of that, um, uh, that community's ability to help itself? And, and that's, that's another thing that I think that we have to um, focus on is that local journalism matters, and it matters as much as all the other local nonprofits. And it doesn't have to be a for-profit model. There's no reason it has to make money to make people, you know, shareholders happy. There's no reason it can't be a nonprofit model. And we'll, we'll see if it works. Um, I'm, I'm hopeful about it. Um, but, you know, as a person of faith, I'm hopeful but not optimistic. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. No. <laughs> well, I, the, the examples you gave are the perfect examples. And I think, um, as you said, uh, helping people understand the value of, of local journalism. Because I think um, in a world now where national news, global news feels paramount and it's, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, if you're not informed and and I think that's important. But um, I have a I have a similar response to people who live and work in this community and don't know what's happening in this community and where, you know, and I, I, to me, it's more of a, we can't fix the problems unless we know about them. Right. We can't grow our city unless we understand what's fueling our city today. Right. So I, I think it has, you know, any community it's important, but I think it's, it's just so essential for our community in particular to have great journalists. And as you said, I, I'm thrilled to have more journalists in the city. So mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, you call it competition. Um, but I think we've got, you know, some really great news organizations in the Commercial Appeal, the Daily Memphian, but also in MLK mm-hmm. 50 and Chalkbeat and others who um, I think are making each other better and yeah. are helping, again, fill the gaps. So, if they're, you know, mm-hmm. rather than have one big paper that has a bunch of different beats, like to mm-hmm. have some, you know, the folks at Chalkbeat are 
brilliant and mm. have a really unique expertise in both education and as as really experienced journalists. So I love to see it. I, I hope that um, that we continue to support these efforts. I'm curious. You talked a little bit about the, the stories y'all are producing at the University of Memphis. Where can people read your content? Thanks for asking that, too. Um, we have an arrangement with the Daily Memphian, so when we write something, they publish it first. Mm-hmm. They have the right to publish first. So it usually f- ends up first on the Daily Memphian's website. And then a few days later, it'll, we'll put it on our website. Um, I highly encourage you to subscribe to the Daily Memphian, but if you don't or can't, um, then we, we offer our content for free on our website, psrmemphis.org, Public Service Reporting Memphis. Org. We've got all our stories there. And over the past, I'd say, uh, three years, we've probably gotten close to 200 stories on the website. Wow. Um, we also have a couple of interns we're work, working with. Um, part of our goal, part of our mission is to work with the next generation of journalists at the university. And every year we have two interns who do um, – one works on the radio side. Another thing I want to mention about the Institute is that we have a partnership with WKNO. We love uh, them too. Yeah, they're they're great, and they do really good stuff. They they're also um, as limited as other news organizations are locally, with just a lack of bodies. But they the people who are there do great work, and so we work with them. And one of our interns works with them every year, and we also have another reporter we freelance with who works a long time at Nashville Public Radio, who does some work for us and WKNO. So there's a partnership there. Some of our Reporting is also, you can access it um, through WKNO. We do radio reports, podcasts, that sort of thing. So we're trying to branch out uh, and try to find other media, uh, other ways of, of presenting this information. Um, and it's worked out really well. Um, we're also working with Channel uh, 2 a little bit. Um, so we're trying to you know broaden our reach. Um, it's, it's a whole new world out there. Um, my kids who are in their 20s and 30s, I mean, they, they would never think to buy a, a newspaper or even subscribe one online. They get all their information on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, it's okay. You can say there is. Yeah, it's <laughs> not. No, it, it, I mean. Um, this, this room is probably biased You anyway. get a lot of information that way. You just have to be careful about where that information is coming that's, from. That's, I think, the key that has stood out to me about what you've said is that, so I'm. I'm in my early 30s, but I'm a journalism and mass communication major. I wanted the type of stories that you Mm -hmm. were talking about, that you have the freedom to be able to do with the University of Memphis at the Institute. Those are the types of stories that I like to read. I think a lot of people miss that in Mm -hmm. what has become the soundbite culture. And I think you just hit the nail on the head of why it doesn't work in the today's model because if you don't trust that the people who are writing it have that expertise, right. then why would you want to pay for it? Why it, yeah. It's like, which comes first, the chicken or the egg or whatever. It just round and round we go. It feels yeah. like if you can't have, you can't pay the people to spend the time to do it, to right. develop the expertise right. that, you know, and then and then and so on and so forth. Well, and I don't think a lot of people spend a lot of time thinking about where the information they read comes from. Or what it takes to get that information, or what has been done to to get that information, how much care has been taken, how ethical has been the approach, um, how much expertise the particular writer or organization has. Is there an agenda? Is there a bias behind what's being presented? And if you don't take the time to really look at who's giving you this information that's popping up on your Twitter feed or your Facebook page, um, and, and I think one of the one of the roles of us as journalists and also uh, at the university level 
is media literacy. You know, the media has changed so much, so fast over the past five to 10 years. And your generation of folks get your information, you're, you're inundated with news and information. It comes from at you from all sources, all sides, all the time, just nonstop, 24-7. And you can be overwhelmed by it. And, and, and I think it's important for you to be your own editor in some ways. You've got to, you know, we're no longer capable of editing everything for you. We just don't have the manpower. So you have to be your own editors. You have to figure out what kind of information you want, what sources of information you're going to trust and why. And then go to those inf- sources of information. There's actually much more information available now mm. than there ever has been. I mean, in the old days, you know, 20 years ago, if you wanted to read the New York Times, you had to go buy a paper and bring it home or you had to have it delivered to your house. And now you can just, you know, with a couple of clicks, you're reading the New York Times, you're reading the New Yorker, you're reading whatever you want to read. You're re- listening to BBC. You're getting all kinds of news feeds from all over the world, even from, like, people who are on the scene, like people in Syria are right. tweeting. So you're getting that kind of raw source information. And it's great. And it's also giving, it's also empowering people to be, um, to tell people what's happening. You know, if you're behind the Iron Curtain or whatever used to be the Iron Curtain, or you're, you're just in some place that, you know, doesn't have a lot of real news organizations that are reporting anything, you have a voice now. You can speak up. You can say, here's what's happening. Here's what's, you know, if you're in Haiti right now, and the news organizations are having a hard time getting into Haiti. But if you're a Haitian and you have a Twitter account, you can let the world know what's happening. So we are blessed, really, in, in so many ways to have so much information available to us. It's, it's inexcusable, really, not to be informed these days. It's harder to be informed because you have to be your own editor. But it's also, in so many ways, much easier to be informed, to stay informed about what's happening in the world around you. Well, you are an optimist. You lied. <laughs> no, like, no I, you're absolutely correct. And I think um, it's fascinating. We're on the, I think, the brink of a generation where, you know, we're not digital natives in the in the true sense of it. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I did have to, I did have to utilize the internet as a young person, as a child through school. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so interested to see what, what these next generations, like how, because it is, it is a unique skill and I think we've been very bad at it. Um, as adults, <laughs> you've had to, to, to curate the content and, and judge it and make, make value judgments on not just who's giving it to you, but, but why and, and how it's getting to you. And, right. um, it sounds really scary to have to, to for for to to have y'all part of your responsibility through the University of Memphis is to to create that kind of awareness and to help students learn how to be an editor. So I'm, hmm. do, you mentioned the intern program. I'm curious what other interaction y'all have with the students at the U of M, if any, and and how what that part of your job looks like. Yeah, well, strangely, the university has allowed Mark and I both to teach class. Yeah, so. I was going to say, I was like, so do you, t- yeah. I was like, <laughs> yeah. what a treat, though, for, so are, are you, obviously these are Mark, journalism students, I Yeah, assume. Mark teaches a reporting class once a year, um, and, you know, there's no better person to learn basic straight reporting I'm from jealous. Mark Perskia. Yeah. I mean, he knows everything there is to know about how to find some information and, and report it. Uh, and I teach a feature writing class uh, once a year, which I, I love because, I mean, that is my uh, favorite form of mm. of writing, uh, non-fiction writing. 
um, nonfiction journalism, obviously. And uh, students, we, we mostly have undergrads, but every now and then we'll have a grad student. And it was weird last year with COVID, but, you know, what wasn't weird last year with COVID? <laughs> um, so we, we went online. It was virtual. But, you know, you're writing and you're editing, so it's not really a big deal if you're, if you're doing that online. Um, you come uh, audit some classes or something, even the, though I'm not a student. Come on down. I mean, <laughs> you know, the journalism department is actually growing. Their, their, their enrollment keeps going up every year. It's really quite That's amazing. Great to hear. And they're, they're doing more with their graduate program, too. They're trying to get a PhD, uh, PhD program. Um, also, we're working on um, some I- initiatives that are happening campus-wide. Um, Dr. Rudd had started this initiative last year called um, Eradicating Systemic Racism. Um, and he's formed a bunch of committees across the university to try to find ways to uh, address systemic racism and also promote social justice at the university level, but also in ways that will uh, sort of inform the community. And so Otis Sanford, who's a local columnist and a professor down there, a former Commercial Appeal yeah. editor, um, and I have uh, started a task force uh, to look at what the institute and also what the local radio station, that the University of Memphis radio station, WYXR, you may be familiar with that, <laughs> uh, can do to, to We're help We're getting real pe- meta here. Right? <laughs> yeah, right. Let's talk about WYXR. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Otis and Dr. Wright have a show every week, and they talk mm-hmm. about some of these things. Um, so I really think it's important as part of our, um, our mission to inform, to help people understand the news, um, to help people understand things like systemic racism and and CRT, critical race theory. I mean, things that are happening in the news that you are inundated with from all sides about what is CRT and how bad is it or how good is it, how valid is it, uh, how dangerous might it be. I mean, we're just, we just keep hearing this stuff all the time. So how do you make sense of it? How do you know what it really is and what's really behind all of these uh, messages you're getting about critical race theory. I just wrote something a couple of months ago about critical race theory because it came up in the state legislature earlier mm. this year. And it was one of those things that just sort of gets you know overlooked a little bit uh, because there are so few reporters covering the legislature and there's so much to cover. Um, so the legislature decided to um, pass a law that basically told K-12 to teachers that they cannot talk about critical race theory. Uh, they can't talk about systemic racism. And so what, what is that all about? Why did they do that? What is their goal? What's the, uh, what are the consequences of that? And so on. And I think that that's where journalism comes in. We, we get a chance to help people understand all of the ins and outs, all the layers, all the complexities, um, the whys and wherefores of what's happening in the news. And it's really important. Obviously, it's now more important than ever because we have this phenomenon that we've um, – been aware of for at least four and a half years now called fake news, right? Um, Is that fiction news you're talking about? Yes. So um, <laughs> when you hear so much about, when you hear people saying fake news, that's fake news, well, you, you uh, once again, you have to be the editor. You have to decide, is that real or is that not news? Is that, are those facts or are those uh, opinions? And s- there, the line between opinion and fact has it has only blurred it. It has been basically erased, yeah. um, especially in the, in the broadcast world, but also in digital world. So how do you know when something you read or something you hear is is just somebody's opinion, opinion or somebody's perspective on information? You have to be so discerning these days. 
And I think it's incumbent upon professional journalists, and there is still such a thing, um, to get into the information as, you know, they, they say that we're supposed to be uh, objective. You know, they've, we've always been taught, you know, you have to be objective if you're a journalist. Well, in some ways it's really impossible to be objective as a journalist because you are a human being and you have certain feelings and emotions and thoughts and opinions yourself about this and that. But what you, what you have to do is, is to distance yourself from those thoughts and emotions and feelings and opinions. You have to be neutral. You have to be fair. So when I'm writing about critical race theory, I may have my own opinion about what that means and how it matters and the, and the legislation itself. But that's not, it, who cares what I think, really? What matters is what I can find out about it and help people understand about it. So I have to approach that as almost like Switzerland, as neutral as possible and as fairly as possible. I have to get the get all sides. I have to understand why the guys who push the legislation, a very conservative gentleman from East, East Tennessee, what, why did he do that? What, what was so important to him? What was he worried about? What was he afraid of happening? What was his goal with this legislation? I have to sort of get inside his world and his head and understand that. And then I have to understand the opposite side of that. Why some people think that you know, a law to prevent people from talking about systemic racism is actually evidence of systemic racism. Um, so I, I think that we can still do that. And I think that professional journalists have that mission. They have, that's their goal. So how do you find the real professional journalist in a world awash with information and opinion? Um, you got to work a little harder for it. You got you to gotta pay attention. <laughs> you got to look at who's sending the, this information and where, the, where they work and how they work. Um, it's really important. See if they have an absence of malice, huh? There you go. <laughs> Someone went to journalism school. And watched the Sally Field movie. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> Not to be confused. <laughs> Well, this is a good time to, to pivot a little bit. Um, so you gave a TED Talk. When was your TED? Was it 2016? 2016. Oh, my God. I know. I Five years. Time. It's terrifying. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to do that. Was it three years ago? No. Um, I, I, one of my favorites from that year and really from from – you know, the, I guess we've been doing it now for five years. So, um, wow. you've 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 you were in on the front end. Um, tell us first why you were willing to do a TED talk <laughs> before we before we play your TED talk and, and how the, you approached it. Uh, it was uh, one of the most uh, exhilarating and exhausting and frightening experiences of my life. Honestly, <laughs> I've spoken in front of all kinds of groups, um, but for whatever reason, this this was harrowing to me. This um, I'm glad I did it, but I'm glad I don't have to do it ever again. You're, um, you're having a great pitch for the people who are no, coming I, up. I love, I love TED. I've been a fan of TED Talks forever. Uh, I think they're one of the more um, informative ways that we have to help people understand. I mean, it's just fascinating to me that you can get somebody to stand up on a stage and talk, and it's just com- so compelling, it, whether they have you know fancy maps behind them or slides or whatever. Because people know stuff. And one of the things you learn as a journalist is how much people really know. You have to find out the people, find the people who know what you need to know. That's, that's really the, the mission of a journalist. There's stuff I need to know. So who is it that knows that? How do I find them? And how do I get them to share that information with me? 
that's what TED does. You, you know, the people who, who do the TED Talks find these incredibly interesting, amazing, informed people and, and say, tell us what you know. And they know a lot, and it's really important for us to hear that. So I was really honored and, and flattered to be asked. Um, I've been a TED fan for years, so I really wanted to do it. And, and I, I found that over the years, um, especially when I used to write a column, and even when I do um, public talks, um, I, I'm always nervous about it. I'm, I'm not a good public speaker, but I feel like if something needs to be said, then it's important for me to say it. And I had, um, I had been wanting to say what I said in the TED Talk for a long time. I think it's really important for Memphians, especially, to hear some things about this community that, you know, are, that people care about this community, that people really work hard for this community to make it a better place. Um, I see that all the time, every day. There, there are just so many people out there every day who get up every morning and go out there and try to make Memphis a better place. And sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. But they're trying. They really care. And it's really, we, we get in our little silos and we, you know, we think we're the only people in the world who are doing this or care about this. But it's really overwhelming when you think about the thousands and thousands of people who are out there every day trying to do the right thing. And so I wanted to say something about that. I really think it's important for all of us to realize that we're, it's not just that we're all in this together, but there are so many people out there who are who really are in this with us and that's why it matters that's why we're here there's a reason we're here now i remember giving this talk um, at saint mary's chapel many years ago and i talked about um you know your, your high school kids you get asked a lot you know what do you want to do when you grow up what do you want to be what do you want to major in when you go to college that kind of stuff and, you know, the big question is, what's the meaning of life, right? Well, to me, that's the wrong question. The, the, the real question is, what's the meaning of your life? Mm. And not just your life, but your life here now. There have been like 100 billion people or so on this planet at some point over the past X number of years. Why you? Why would you show up now? Why would you show up here in this place? There's, there must be a reason because otherwise, you know, it's unfathomable that there isn't a reason for you to be here now or for me to be here now. So what is that? How do, you, how do we figure that out? What are some tools we can use? What are some, I mean, there's a, one of the things I love about writing about faith and religion is that to me those are the wisdom traditions. There's so much wisdom in all of these faith traditions. These people who, have, who really sort of get it, <laughs> you know, they understand these layers and depths of, of life and meaning um, and purpose. And so I looked back at some of those traditions and I, f I found this guy, I talked about Frederick Buechner, who talked about the idea of uh, vocation. You know, we spend so much time talking about occupation. And we'll, let's think about our vocation instead of what is the purpose of our lives here now and how do we figure that out? And that's what uh, I was fortunate enough to, I think, be able to do. Uh, yes, you did. I was like, you could give a TED Talk on your TED Talk. <laughs> I know, <laughs> right now. Thanks. Well, let's, let's take a break and let's listen to the brilliant and apparently petrified David Waters <laughs> give a TED Talk in 2016. His talk was titled, No Better Place Than This. Occupation is one of our great preoccupations. What do you do? Meaning, what's your vocation? I mean, what's your occupation? What do you do for a living? What's your major? What classes are you taking to prepare for your future occupation? 
what are you good at? Meaning, what skills or talents do you have that will help you prepare for a particular occupation? What do you want to be when you grow up? I wanted to be a lot of things when I grew up. Major League Baseball player. I didn't have the eyes for it. Jazz trumpeter. I didn't have the ear for it. President of the United States. I did not have the stomach for it. At some point, I came to my senses and realized I wanted to be a newspaper journalist. My dream was to work for the Washington Post. I grew up in the Watergate 1970s. My heroes were journalists. Woodward and Bernstein and Bradley and Buckwald and all the great journalists who worked for the Washington Post. To me, they were superheroes. They fought for truth, justice, and the people's right to know. Not with capes or tights or x-ray vision, although that would come in handy, but with regular glasses and questions and words. I love words. I love working with words. I love the superpower of words to help us think and feel and know and understand. Working with words for a newspaper seemed Noble and fun. Working at the Washington Post, impossible. <laughs> I sent the Post my resume a couple times in my late 20s and early 30s. Nothing. I didn't even get a polite form rejection letter. I never thought I'd ever get the chance to work at my dream job in my dream city. So in 2007, when the Washington Post called me and offered me that job in that city, I took it. Some people give two weeks notice. I barely gave two days notice. Seriously. I took the new job on a Friday and I left my old job and life the following Monday. I could not wait to get to Washington. If Kevin Costner had asked me, is this heaven? I would have said, no, this is the freaking Washington Post. <laughs> I worked like two blocks from the White House. I got to spend quality time with the amazing Sally Quinn and the venerable, legendary Ben Bradley and hear their Watergate stories firsthand. I got to work alongside some of the best journalists in the world. I even got to work with Woodward and Bernstein, briefly. It's all they had time for. It's all I had time for. I realized that this was my dream job in my dream city. I had made it, I was here. But it was my occupation, not my vocation. What's the difference? Well, it's all about the words. Let's check the roots. Occupation, from the Latin occupare, meaning to take over or possess shares the same root as the word occupy. Makes sense, our occupation tends to occupy most of our time. Vocation, from the Latin vocare, meaning to call, shares the same root as the word vocative. As we all remember from grammar school, the vocative case identifies the person being directly spoken to. As in, make your point, comma David, we don't have all day, comma, David. Here's my point, comma, audience. 
Vocation speaks directly to you and to me. How do we hear it? How do we know what to listen for? We're going to need some help with that. If you're trying to find the right occupation, you might consult a headhunter. If you're trying to find the right vocation, you might want to think about consulting a heart hunter. One of the wisest heart hunters I know is Frederick Beekner. He's a Presbyterian minister and writer. Beekner says we're here to find and fulfill our vocation, not to fill out job applications. Beekner says your vocation is the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. The place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Beautiful words. What do they mean? Let's unpack them a little bit. The world's deep need. We live in a world of infinite needs. How can you help? What work can you do that most needs to be done? A list of possibilities is endless, of course. The world needs people who can care for others and protect others, lead others and serve others, educate others and entertain others. The world needs people who can help others think and feel and know and understand. The world needs journalists. I'm a journalist. So far, so good. Number two, your deep gladness. You have all sorts of talents and skills and abilities and interests, which gives you the most joy, which gives you energy, purpose, fulfillment, which is most helpful and meaningful to you and to others. I could teach others, but I'd rather not. I don't want to work that hard. I could try to entertain others, but you'd rather me not. I love helping myself and others try to think and feel and know and more and understand more about the world. I love being a journalist, two for two, still good. Number three, where, the place where your deep gladness meets the world's deep need. Where? It's a big world. Where are you supposed to be? Where are you most connected? Where can you be most helpful? Where does your deep gladness meet the world's deep need? I really, really, really wanted my where to be Washington. It just wasn't. I grew up in Ohio. My wife, who grew up in Georgia, likes to say I'm Yankee by birth and Southern by the grace of God. I have no reason to doubt it. After we got married, we moved to Memphis. It just happened to be the biggest, closest city with an affordable university. I never intended to stay. I knew there were bigger, better places out there somewhere. I always thought I'd find one and go there. Wendell Berry, a poet and a farmer, and one of those heart hunters could have told me otherwise. Wendell Berry wrote, there is no better place than this, not in this world. And it's by the place we've got and our love for it and our keeping of it 
that this world is joined to heaven. Memphis isn't heaven. It's hot as hell, but it isn't that either. <laughs> it's somewhere in between. Living in Memphis is like living with someone you dearly love and at times can't stand, <laughs> who also has a chronic and possibly fatal disease. There are times of sheer joy and love and delight, moments when you are fully aware of how blessed you are to be part of that loved one's life. And there are moments of utter despair and anxiety, times when the reality of the present and the daunting task ahead come rushing back. There are times when the quirky, funky, obstinate, generous beauty and character of Memphis make you glad and proud and hopeful to be here in the capital of the Delta. And as we've heard, there are times when the chronic poverty and violence and poor health and whatnot make you fear the present and worry about the future of our soulful, doleful city. There are times when we laugh and times when we dance there are times when we weep and times when we mourn. I never felt that way about Washington. I never felt that way in Washington. My head was there, but not my heart. My house was there, but not my home. My job was there, but not my joy. So, in 2010, I left my occupation in Washington to come back to my vocation in Memphis, where my love for words and questions can be of some use, where my love for Memphis and my keeping of it tell me there is no better place than this, where my deep gladness meets the world's deep need, where does yours? I hope it's here. There is no better place. Thank you. Welcome back. You, if you just changed the dial, you are joining us listening to Meanwhile in Memphis on WYXR Radio 91.7 FM. And we just listened to David Waters' 2016 TED Talk, No Better Place Than This. So I have a million questions I feel like I could ask, but my favorite part was the breakdown of the difference between occupation and vocation mm -hmm. and the way that occupation sounded so negative. Well, yeah, <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't quite attend that. But no, maybe but I, I mean, um, it's a job, Anna. <laughs> no, and it <laughs> occupies you. Right. <laughs> like you are the host of this thing. Um, so the thing that, again, stuck out to me was that occupation, for an occupation, you need a headhunter, mm. but for a vocation, you need a heart hunter. Mm. So that's where, you know, your vocation is where your heart meets mm. what you're good at. Your right. occupation can just be something you do. Something basically. you do to get a paycheck yes. to pay your bills. Yeah. Yes. Although, you, can, you know, if you're blessed, you can have both at the same time. And, and I feel like I have been blessed for a long time to... To have my vocation be a part of my occupation, be part of my vocation, but I also think we don't want to get trapped in the idea that it has that vocation always has something to do with what you do to make a living. 
Um, I think one of the lines I said is, it's what you do for the living. So mm-hmm. you may have a job that is okay, it pays your bills, it's fine, you know, it's something you do. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean that because it's not your vocation that you have failed somehow. You can find many other ways to experience and express your vocation. Vocation isn't necessarily about who pays your who pays your check every week. Um, so I think that our, our society is so focused on what you're going to do as a career, as a job, and there's a lot of good reasons for that. We, we have bills to pay. We have things to do. Um, but the focus on, you know, what you're going to major in and what job you have, you know, when you go to a party, what do you do? You know, that's always the question. What do you do? Um, meaning, what is your job, right? Um, I, I think we lose, and I've only, I only sort of began to, see this really when I when I had kids and as they started to grow I wanted so much for them and I still want so much for them and I tried to you know initially you're thinking about well are they going to be a lawyer doctor teacher whatever but that's not what really matters what really matters is the human being they become the human being they are what they have to contribute to the world what gifts do they bring to this planet to help us all do better and get better. And it's not necessarily tied to a job. It can be the way you are as a parent or the way you are as a neighbor or the way you are as a sister or the way you are as uh, what you what you do, um, visit nursing homes or, you know, there's so many ways to serve to help other people. So the first thing I think you have to figure out is what are your gifts? What, what are you really good at? And it's not necessarily like reading or writing or arithmetic. Know, arithmetic. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it's, you know, things like kindness. You know, my daughter is the, one of the kindest people I've ever known. Um, that is a gift that she has to give the world. There are many ways that she can give that gift of kindness to the world. Some of it is through her work as a, as a kindergarten teacher. But also, there are other ways that she does that um, through her life. So I think it's it's helpful for us and, and important for us to focus on those gifts that aren't necessarily monetized or monetizable, right? Um, a lot of people have the gift of encouragement or enthusiasm, um, wisdom. I mean, there's some really wise people who are doing, you know, low-income, dead-end jobs, but they're, they have this wisdom about them. Um, I think we, we undervalue uh, people who are older because we think, well, at some point you're going to retire. Well, that, that seems silly to me. We've got these people who have lifetimes worth of experience and knowledge and wisdom and understanding, and we just want to make them retire. No, we need to find out what they know. We need to turn them into elders and help. They need to help us be better people. Um, so so look at looking at gifts in a different way I think is really important. And also I think it's really important what what gives you life, what gives you energy. There are all kinds of things we could do. A lot of, a lot of us are multi-talented. We can do this, we can do that. But what is it that, you know, gets you up in the morning? What is it that you look forward to? What is it that gives you that sort of inner th- excitement? You can tell when somebody is talking to you about something. You know, when they start leaning a little closer, they start talking in a little more excited way. That's when they. That's when you're getting closer to their vocation. You know what. What really gives them life, and if you can find a way to marry that with, you know, your gifts with what gives you life, in ways that help people, 
you know, there are so many ways that we can help people. There's so many things, there's so many needs out there, especially in a place like Memphis. What I love too is that you, through your TED talk, you talked about your journey about wanting your end goal was Washington Post. You, mm-hmm. you wanted that so dream bad, job. your dream job. And you got it, and it wasn't what you thought it would be. Right. And so marrying what you, all the things you just talked about, all the gifts that you've been given that aren't necessarily or might not necessarily be monetizable, but then also using them to help the world, it also matters where you are mm-hmm. doing this. And so you brought that back to Memphis because that was where you felt most alive. And you described that much more beautifully than and eloquently than I am in this moment. But I laughed out loud going back and watching it whenever you said living in Memphis is like living with someone you dearly love that at times you cannot stand that also has a chronic and possibly fatal disease. (laughs) I was like, and then you went on to describe all the ins and outs of, and having had an aging um, grandfather who we cared for for many years before he passed. And similarly, so I'm, I'm more in tune with what that day-to-day process would look like than maybe I used to be. And Mm. so the way you described that was so beautiful and so true and authentic about the highest of highs, the lowest of lows, the most frustrating, but the most fulfilling. And I think that's such a beautiful picture of what Memphis can be. Mm. Yeah. Well, I think that that's part of of our status problem. You know, we think that it's better working at the Washington Post— at the commercial appeal because it's a bigger place. It's a more exciting place. It's, you know, the center of the universe in some ways. And it's what we all should strive for. We should all strive for working at the best newspaper or working at the best TV station or working at the best corporation and the highest possible job in the biggest city or whatever. And, and I think that um, that causes more strife and stress than anything is that sort of need that whatever, wherever that comes from, that need to to excel at some level in some place um, that we're supposed to. Like, you know, why would I leave the Washington Post, which is about as high as you can get in the journalism world, and go back to the Memphis Commercial Appeal? Well, it's because it's in Memphis. It's the same kind of work. It's journalism. But it's to me, working in Memphis in journalism is journalism with a purpose. It has meaning for my life because Memphis means something to me. It's where I raised my kids. It's where I, my wife and I, I got married and, and became a couple and became parents. And um, we know so many people in this community, and we know so much about this community. We know the good and the bad and the ugly, and th- and we're connected. And and what happens in this place matters to us. What happened in D.C., like I said, it was like a, it was like going on this great field trip. It's like I had a lot of fun, but I really wasn't connected to Washington or the Washington area personally, professionally, my family. Um, so it just wasn't as meaningful. The work was great. I loved it, and I loved being in, in Washington. It was a fun place to be, but it, it lacked that meaning. It just didn't spark. have a purpose. Yeah. Lots of other people are there. They can handle it. I, I want to go back to Memphis and work on stuff here because this is this is home. Well, David, we couldn't be more thrilled that you chose Memphis. Um, you know, I, I, I mean this very authentically, that I think you've, you've, you've made a huge imprint on the city, and Thank I'm you. very excited about the new work that you're doing. I'm very grateful that you gave a TED Talk five years ago, and I'm grateful for you being here today to talk to us about it. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's always wonderful to talk to you both. <laughs>
If you just turned that dial, you are listening to WYXR 91.7 FM, and this is Meanwhile in Memphis on this Tuesday morning, and we are super excited to have New Memphis's own interns in the studio. They are Bank of America Student Leaders, which is a program that New Memphis has partnered with for three years. But nationally, Bank of America has had the Student Leaders Program for almost 20 years, and it spans the whole country, and representatives are chosen to um, be interns at a local nonprofit and just get a whole host of other developmental and like professional skills as they think about going into college. So I'm probably butchering all of the descriptions of it. I'm distilling it way, way, way down, and it's much more robust than this. But we are super excited to have Landerson Young and Tatiana Pope in the studio today. And so they are with us this summer. They've already been such a huge help, and I hope that we have been helpful to them in the same way. Um, So I'm going to turn it over to them because I know it's easier on the radio to know whose voice is whose. So we can start it off and you can just kind of say your name and introduce yourself and then we can pass it over to the other. Hi, my name is Tatiana Pope. I recently just graduated from East High School here in Memphis, Tennessee. Now I'll be a freshman at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, I have a passion for education reform. I want to create a more educational, equitable educational system and I'm really excited to be here. Yay, welcome, welcome. Hi, my name is Landerson Young. I am a graduated senior from Germantown High School, and I will be attending the North Carolina A&T in the fall. I have a strong passion for um, economic mobility and uh, creating different resources uh, for economic mobility and financial literacy. I hope to own my own nonprofit one day, focus on those two things, um, but also focus on young black women, especially within the Memphis community uh, and communities like Greensboro, which I will be living in for the next four years. Yay, welcome, welcome. So all of that to say, they are light years ahead of where I was when I was a high school um, senior. So, well, I guess a newly graduated senior, I should say. Um, So the Bank of America Student Leaders Program um, is consistent, like comprised of, is a better word, of uh, high school juniors or seniors who have demonstrated a commitment to their communities, along with strong leadership qualities. So they apply, they go through this super rigorous program, which again, would not have been super appealing to me when I was um, coming out of high school. It would have been like way too intense. I would have been like, cool, I'll save that for when I'm a junior or senior in college, not a junior or senior in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, but so they, this, this, they're the cream of the crop. They um, literally are the best of the best we have here in Memphis. And we are so, so thrilled. So um, Landerson, what drew you to the Bank of America Student Leaders Program? What made it seem appealing to you? Truthfully, um, the thing that drew me to the program was when I read the description of the things that the program wanted to focus on or why they were doing this, their mission. So in the mission, it talked about creating it talked about creating lanes so that students can gain economic mobility. And it talked about um, creating these different resources and giving students these resources so that they can be successful. Because sometimes it's not that students don't have, um, students don't have the, 
the drive or the, the yeah right the, the passion, passion or yeah. the drive to do certain things it's just that they sometimes don't have the resources so I, I really like the mission I really resonated with the mission because it's some these are things that I want to focus on in my journey and my path so it really resonated with me and though that uh, mission is why I applied I love that what about you Tatiana um, I like to think that I'm a community engager. And Ooh. so when I saw that Bank of America was partnering with the local nonprofit, that alone um, kind of pushed me to apply. I'm a youth who wants to get involved in the Memphis community. And I really believe that the Memphis youth, we aren't as involved just because we don't know. And so if I know, I can share what I know with other youth. So I'm happy to be here. Oh, well, we're thrilled to have you. So basically what you're saying is that New Memphis drew you to the Bank of America program. <laughs> yeah. <New> <laughs> it's okay. You don't have to lie to me. No. Um, so tell us a little bit about what your summer has been like thus far. I know it has been mainly a virtual internship program, um, unlike in years past. But I hope that it's still been super beneficial. So Tatiana, we want to start with you on this one and see what has been like your favorite, like, most fun or beneficial thing that you've gotten from this student leaders program and interning at New Memphis this summer? Okay, so just for some background, I work with Elise, who is a part of the collegiate engagement. She kind of spearheads that here in New Memphis. Yes, she's been on this podcast before. If you're an avid listener, you remember Elise. Yes, she's amazing. But I work um, with her. And so my favorite thing and my most impactful thing is probably just meeting different college students, learning their stories. So um, at lunch events, me and Landerson, we go up and we talk to the students and get quotes for our launch page. But it's been impactful to learn their different stories, where they come from. Not all of them are from Memphis. Not all of them plan to stay in Memphis. But just learning their different stories has been really impactful. I love it. And the events are not bad. So, Landerson, what's been your favorite part? So um, this summer has really been a source of research for me. Uh, like I said earlier, I really want to open or start or found my own nonprofit organization. So just working with Nora, who is the head of the community engagement team, has really helped me to understand pretty much everything that goes into the community work for a nonprofit organization. Right. But not only that, uh, Tatiana and I both got to meet with each perspective team um, of New Memphis. And so we got to see really what goes into a nonprofit organization. And there are so many different layers that go into it. So it was so wonderful to learn these different things. It's so great to see how everyone within the the Institute uh, within New Memphis really want to be engaged with the community and really have that drive and passion to be engaged. I love that. Yeah, um, that was that was fun for us too to get to meet with y'all and kind of have a reason to like do our little elevator pitches from each different like uh, area of what New Memphis does because we do so much. So it's nice to kind of distill it, break it down for y'all and hopefully help you see what you would maybe like to pursue in the future. Um, so if you were recommending the Bank of America Student Leaders Program to other high school students, whether in Memphis or somewhere else that you meet along the way, what would you say, why would you say, apply for this program, try really hard, make sure it's a priority for you? I think I would start by just saying that Memphis is community community that has poured into the youth in many different ways and so the way that we can just give back is by applying to this program because I've learned so much about Memphis just in my 
few weeks being here that I did not know in my years of living here. And so I would just tell them, like, this is a way to give back to your community. And if you're a community builder like me, you would really enjoy this experience. You get to meet new people. You get to meet different um, institutions, different non- other nonprofit organizations, um, get some really good Memphis food, <laughs> see some really good Memphis just areas that you've never seen before. And it was a perfect opportunity to just, it's a perfect opportunity to just expand your wings in Memphis. Okay, so Lee Anderson, it is National Intern Week, and you just wrapped up um, your uh, Student Leaders Conference, which is where all of the student leaders from across the country kind of got together. Usually it was in D.C., so I do apologize that you didn't get to go to D.C. I hate that y'all had to miss that out. It was virtual this year. But y'all just wrapped that up, and now you're um, so a part of this other national week, this National Intern Week. So what does it mean to you? Or is it exciting, like beneficial? What What are your feelings about being a part of something so much bigger that goes outside of Memphis? I think that it's amazing um, to be a part of something so much bigger than myself and, and so much bigger than just Memphis. I, last week, uh, during the uh, leadership, what is it, the summit? The summit, During yeah, the leadership yeah. summit, I really got to meet with and just share ideas with and get different perspectives on so many different issues, get different perspectives and in so many different experiences that we all have. And so to me, that showed that not only do I have so much in common with, with students from other different cities and states, but also that we can work together on uh, different things, even though we're from different states or from different cities or have had these different experiences. But um, there's always a common ground that we can find and just uh, be able to work with each other on different things. And I, I really and I really um, was able to understand and really was able to learn how, how these different experiences um, have shaped our different lives and have brought us all to this point in being together. So I, I really have enjoyed this experience and I really have in, in learned that this is something bigger than just myself and bigger than uh, just Memphis. So it's definitely been a learning experience and I really have enjoyed it. Yay! Well, we're glad to hear it. So, um, like I said, these are Bank of America student leaders, Landerson Young and Tatiana Pope, and they are also our New Memphis interns for the summer. So, if you've been out to some of our events, you might have seen their beautiful faces, and if not, you it is your loss because they are super great. And we are thrilled to have them here in studio to celebrate National Intern Week, and we are thrilled to also be a partner with Bank of America in helping create resources and, like you said, Landerson Lanes for resources so that the next generation is just equipped to just knock it out of the park, which obviously y'all are. Um, The fact that this program is so robust and there are so many people, so many um, young people who are interested in it and that it really is that competitive just excites me from the jump because again I don't know that that's where my head was when I was y'all's age so it makes me thrilled to know that not just in Memphis but across the country there are people who are using their passions and their talents to 
to make this country and our city um, a better place. So everybody around, if you know interns or if your company has interns, wish them a happy National Intern Week. And that about does it for us for this little segment. All right, that's it for us this week. We will see you next week in Memphis. For Meanwhile in Memphis, if you uh, are listening to this podcast, please like, review, share. Uh, Thanks to WYXR, and we'll see you next week. Bye.